Uh, it was hard to find two different arsenic poisonings because there are a lot of unhappy wives throughout history. <laughs> <laughs> like a lot. When divorce isn't an option, people get creative. That's all I'm yeah, saying. I no joke wonder if arsenic prices uh, rose during the pandemic when everyone's just stuck together. I wonder <laughs> if people, you never know. I'm just being a hundred right here. You probably. <laughs> Supply demand, guys. Like, yeah. <laughs> Hi, everyone. From Yum Day and Van Valen Productions, welcome to Every Day is a Food Day. I'm your host, Leah Ballantyne. And I'm your other host, Anna Van Valen. We hope you've got your smelling salts ready. Because in this episode, we're living dangerously. Instead of focusing on a regular food like we usually do. Today, we're talking about foods that all share one deadly feature. Poison. That's right. Today is all about poisonous foods, and we've enlisted a special guest to be our accomplice. In the deep dish, we'll be indulging our true crime addictions by telling you the stories of a few real-life poisonings, from a professional assassin on a Roman emperor's payroll to a cult that pulled off the biggest bioterror attack in American history using salad. And who better to help us tell these toxic tales than Danny Murphy, host of Not Another True Crime Podcast. But first, I'll be telling you about the few holidays dedicated to poisonous foods, a Japanese delicacy more toxic than anthrax, and extreme eaters who make a career of eating dangerous foods. If you'd like to support this women and BIPOC-created independent podcast, head to our website and click the button that says, buy me a coffee and, well, buy us a coffee. And while you're on the website, you can enter our monthly giveaway for the chance to win a delicious prize. Be sure to subscribe and please leave a rating and review. Help us get the word out about the show by sharing it with anyone who loves food, podcasts, or both. For more great content about the foods and stories we talk about on the show, and to get a sneak peek behind the scenes, connect with us on social media by following at Food Day Pod and check out the links in the show notes to our website and mailing list. If I were you, I'd take precautions. This is no ordinary apple. It's a magic wishing apple. A wishing apple? Yes. One bite, and all your dreams will come true. Really? Yes, girly. Now, make a wish. And take a bite. So today we're talking about poisons. And Leah, are there actual holidays for poisons? Okay, so there aren't really a bunch of food holidays celebrating poisons. So my segment is done. (laughs) It's time for the deep dish. (laughs) When we come back, the deep dish. (laughs) Well, while there aren't really like holidays around poisonous foods, there are holidays that celebrate foods that could potentially be poisonous. If ah. not picked or prepared properly. So we've got a couple. There's National Mushroom Month in September and National Seafood Month in October. So I'm going to focus in on, on a couple of these months here. Okay. So National Mushroom Month, which is in September, we all know that we should be careful about what mushrooms we forage from the wild. Yep. <laughs> but if you want to know a little bit more about this month, it was actually created by the U.S. Mushroom Council 
1993. Now, is that council? Is that another word for board? It's another board. No, I knew it. Food boards. Food boards. So there is a mushroom council that uses the month of September to promote mushrooms. And did you know that the mushroom capital of the world is actually in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania? Really? Yes. Where is that? (laughs) It's a little town in Pennsylvania. Or they're responsible for 50% of America's mushrooms. Wow. And they have a whole festival to celebrate it. They've got a parade. And that started back in the 80s. They have a whole Mushroom Week celebration. And one year for New Year's Eve, they did like an 800-pound mushroom drop, <laughs> similar to the ball drop in New York. Was it an 800-pound mushroom or was it like a ball covered in mushroom caps? It was like a ball of mushrooms. Okay. That's too many mushrooms. (laughs) It's way too many. Uh, But I was like, how in the world did this little town become the mushroom capital of the world? And legend is that 150 years ago, the Quakers decided to grow mushrooms in the unused spaces under like elevated beds in their greenhouses. Okay. It was pretty ambitious. But there was an advantage that Kenneth Square had, and it was because it was located next to a larger city. So at that time, there was a ton of like horse manure available to them (laughs) to grow the best mushrooms and to grow lots of mushrooms. And as you know, you need horse shit to grow delicious mushrooms. I guess you do. So they had to go out, harvest the horse shit, Mm -hmm. then put it under whatever their porch. Sounds like a dirty job. It is a dirty job. (laughs) And then in October, you have National Seafood Month, which is something that the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration promotes every year, really to raise awareness of the depleting fishing industry. Mm. But also in October and related to seafood is National Pufferfish Day on October 9th. So I guess we kind of do have a poison food holiday. Wow. The holiday is actually a reference that came from Urban Dictionary, and it was just posted (laughs) last year in October 2020. Okay. So we obviously have to trust that this is a very real celebration. Super legit. And according to the person who posted this day on Urban Dictionary, the deal is on the 9th of October, you must use the pufferfish emoji at least twice or else you get bad luck with pufferfish until the next October 9th. Wow. I don't think I used the pufferfish emoji last year on that day. Was this sponsored by the pufferfish emoji? You know what? Is there big pufferfish out there? <laughs> There's got to be. It's got to be. be like some secret, you know, thing. They're like, we got to raise awareness of this emoji that's not used as much. <laughs> Underutilized emoji. <laughs> so listeners, I want you to use the pufferfish emoji that I just learned existed at least once this week. We want to see that like pop up in the comments. Absolutely. Like all pufferfish. Just Absolutely. pufferfish Slide into our DMs. <laughs> Pufferfish. What do you think that means? I don't know. I'm kind of scared now. Every emoji has a secret meaning. There's got to be like an emoji dictionary that tells you. Yeah. Now I'm just looking up the emoji to see. Holy shit, it is there. Yeah, there's a pufferfish one. I don't think I've ever used it, but now I know. We're going to start a movement. Listeners, let's start a movement. Yes. On our Instagram, comment what you think the pufferfish should be a symbol of, Mm -hmm. and we'll start a movement. I love that. Doesn't have to be sexual. (laughs) Yeah, it could be be something very pleasant and PG. It'll probably end up being about sex. Don't worry about it. It's going to (laughs) be. It's going to be something dirty. But we digress. <laughs> yes. So speaking of pufferfish, which is probably one of the most, I guess, known poisonous foods out there, mm-hmm. there is a national fugu day in Japan. So fugu is what the, the Japanese refer to as the pufferfish or the blowfish. Okay. And fugu will fucking kill you <laughs> if it's not prepared right. 
<laughs> Boo-boo will blow you away. <laughs> I guess because people get puffed up and think they can handle mm-hmm. eating the fugu, huh? They do. They really do. So on February the 9th, Fugu Day was a celebration that was started in 2003 by Fugu dealers in Japan. So again, these boards, these councils, these dealers. And that year in 2003, they held a Fugu Fair at a major market in the city of Shimonoseki. And they served free Fugu to the first 1,000 visitors. I don't know if those people are still alive. (laughs) That seems dangerous. Also, open-air wet markets internationally, probably not things I'm going to frequent anytime soon. (laughs) So is fugu always poisonous or is it once in a while or is it a specific preparation you have to do? Mm, Yeah. So fugu is basically loaded up with poison and toxins. (laughs) So it's a delicacy in Japan. It's a luxury seafood, a very luxury ingredient. And, you know, the fugu, this fish, has thorns all over its body, puffs Mm -hmm. up when it gets scared. So something about the thorn should just tell you, like, hey, do not touch. (laughs) But people want it. Yeah. So this fish is super deadly. It's actually 200 times more poisonous than cyanide. (gasps) What? So, yes. How are people allowed to eat it? You have to make sure that it is prepared, like, perfectly. Yeah. And it takes a lot of training for a chef to know how to prep a fugu. Because in that fish, just two or three milligrams of the poison that's in it, which is a neurotoxin called tetrodotoxin, that can kill a human. It's more potent than arsenic, cyanide, or even anthrax. Whoa. It's crazy. Yeah. So this, this poison is in the organs of the fish. It's in its liver, its eyes, and on its skin. So if you get poisoned, what happens is like basically your mouth will start tingling. Then it'll go numb, and then all motor functions cease. <laughs> Your respiratory muscles are paralyzed, and you're dead. Oh it's very God. rapid. It's violent. There's no antidote. Like, don't call 911. Exactly. It's don't over. cry for me, Argentina. It's over. Yeah. There's no antidote to the tetrodotoxin. So it's really like, that's it. Wow. Okay, something crazy that I also read about these fugu fish. The female fugu are even more deadly than the male fugu because their ovaries are way more poisonous than the testes of the male fugu. Ovaries are more powerful. I would mm-hmm. absolutely, they are. absolutely get behind that. So way more powerful. And apparently during the spawning season, the toxins in the ovaries become really strong and super dangerous. Is there a way to tell if it's like ovulating? <laughs> Nothing worse than a horny pufferfish. Oh. But you know what? Like, people have been eating this dish for centuries, and it's been outlawed at, like, different points in history because, you know, it killed people. Yeah. It can't be that good. Well, they say that if you can, I guess if you survive and you're able to eat it, it's supposed to be amazing. So is a Snickers bar. Like, (laughs) just eat your Snickers, guys. Just have a Snickers if you're hungry. But, you know, it was like a delicacy. It's exciting. And in 1930, there was an organization called the Tokyo Riori Renmei Cooking Alliance, which was formed to ensure the safe consumption of fugu. So Mm. apparently after it had been outlawed, there was a prime minister who really enjoyed fugu and he wanted to bring it back. Corruption. But in order to do that, you had to make sure, of course, that people who were getting their hands on it were 
preparing it and consuming it safely. So this alliance was formed. And there's actually a statue of Fugu in a park in Tokyo that commemorates the formation of the alliance and also is a tribute to its founders. Like Fugu is is a big deal. Wow. So you can eat it if it's prepared properly, Mm -hmm. but that definitely comes at a price. So you need to be a, a licensed chef to prepare this. And it takes years of training. There are exams. There are like time tests for this. Can you like prep a fugu? And can you also live? <laughs> what do you practice on? How do you know if they did it right? Well, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> you so when you practice, it's like all in how you I guess butcher your fugu. Okay. How you take the organs out. And I think in one of the tests, like if they spot like a little bit of blood or something off the plate, you fail. Mm. If you do make it, you're considered to be like one of Japan's elite chefs. Wow. And I mean, like, yeah, of course, you're alive. <laughs> You've cut up a fugu fish. I'm wondering if they do like a, your fugu comes with a little bell or something. <laughs> and like, if you if you start dying, you can... <laughs> like, oh, guys, Someone... <laughs> something's not right here. <laughs> Does anyone have an EpiPen? Anyone? Yeah. <laughs> they probably do need to have something like that because... I mean, if you're going to be eating fugu, first of all, you're paying like at least like $100 for like a sliver of fish. Yeah. It's very expensive. Some places it's like thousands just wow. to eat this. And the way it's prepared is you're eating this in sashimi form. So it's like <gasps> raw, thin slices of no. fugu. Yeah. Something that I, I was reading was that some chefs will arrange the slices like petals in the form of a chrysanthemum flower. If you know anything about Japanese culture, Asian culture, and the meaning of the chrysanthemum, this is kind of a morbid thing because that flower is used in funeral wreaths. (laughs) Wow, that's dark. I kind of like that. It is really dark. But yeah, the the classic preparation is in that sashimi form. And some chefs will do like a fried fugu Mm. or a fugu hot pot. And I guess maybe that's a little safer for you. At least something is getting heated up and warmed up. Maybe the toxin will be as strong and you can survive that. You can boil it off. Yeah. Boil off some of that poison. Reducing the (laughs) neurotoxins. Like a toxin reduction. (laughs) There's also some places that will serve like a hot sake with charred fugu fin. But seriously, if there's even one little mistake in how it's prepared or if like any of that tetrodotoxin gets in you, then like game over. You're done. (laughs) Yeah. Do you think if you're going, I mean, this is very American of me to ask, but do you think if you're eating it at some restaurant, you have to sign like 50 pages worth of waivers and release forms and things that say your family can't (laughs) sue the restaurant? You You probably do. I'm sure that like in this day and age now, there's going to be, you know, legal waivers and everything to just sign off. Yeah. A lawyer has (laughs) to talk to you first Uh before you got to get this thing notarized. (laughs) Yeah, there has to be. There has to be. But what's crazy to me is that there are people who really want to live on the edge and eat things like fugu. And they call themselves, you know, adventurous eaters, extreme eaters. And there's one writer named Tom Parker Bowles. I don't know if that name sounds familiar oh, to you. Related to Camilla? Yes, it's the son of Camilla and Andrew Parker Bowles. Those fucking royals. I know. Well, Tom spent a year in search of just dangerous foods. And he wrote a book and published it in 2006. And it was called The Year of Eating Dangerously, A Global Adventure in Search of Culinary Extremes. And so he documents his time doing just this, like eating poisonous foods like fugu. (laughs) So what else did he try? 
there were a lot of more bizarre foods, you know, people eating scorpions and like snake and stuff. But the fugu is definitely one of the more poisonous, more potentially yeah. deadly lethal foods that he ate. And, you know, he's doing it because he was like a daredevil. And it's kind of a food of the elite because mm. you really have to have that sort of money access probably yeah to be able to get a seat even with one of these chefs to make you the fugu dish so he was like hey remember how prince charles had an affair and uh, broke diana's heart and emotionally abused her well that was with my mom so can i get a table <laughs> so i was like okay well what's the flavor gotta be like hmm. it's gotta taste good right and some people do say it's really delicious but then there are some that are like, it actually doesn't have very much taste. It's a subtle seafood flavor, like a whitefish sashimi. So I I think that maybe people are just in on it because of the danger aspect. I can see that. Mm-hmm. More so than like the flavor. To say that you have eaten it and also that you have eaten it and survived, ideally. Yeah. Just like this guy who goes to Japan to eat fugu. Today we'll try three different fugu dishes. Sashimi, fried fugu, and fugu hot pot. But first I want to show you how it's taken apart. So right now we're headed into the kitchen. He's gonna start to fillet this fish. First, the chef severs the spine, killing the fish instantly and allowing it to bleed out for 15 minutes so we avoid ingesting any toxins in its blood. Step two, fin removal. Pufferfish fin is used to make a hirezake. Hirezake means uh, Pufferfish fins. Sake. Sake. I had that last and night. Every part of the fish that won't kill you gets used. Even the fin is served in sake. Well, they actually put the fin inside. Exactly. It. So the grilled fin is inside. But we'll save that for a future video. Dangerous part is uh, in the organ. The chef makes quick work of the fugu, removing its head, skinning it, then cutting out the poisonous organs. I made a mistake. This is a. Uh, Male. Oh, it is a male? Yes. Oh, can I eat the balls? I mean, the testicles? Yes, but they're very, very uh, tiny. <laughs> this poor fish. He thought it was a lady. And then he's like, it's got tiny little testicles. They're not even worth eating. This is our organ. Very, oh. very dangerous part. Finally, after sectioning off most of the body, the fugu filet remains, ready to be made into sashimi. The sashimi, mm. both sides. To make a sashimi, we need to make a filet. The other bits are saved for fried fugu and hot pot. I feel like I would have phantom tingles. I am just imagining, like, I would think that my mouth was numb. Yeah, having a psychosomatic... Because mm-hmm. even a panic attack can make you feel like you can't really move. Right. And as if the fugu wasn't enough for some of these people, there are some adventurous danger eaters who have also jumped on the raw chicken bandwagon. No. So, people be eating raw chicken. But that's number one, don't eat. <laughs> I know. That's the salmonella center <laughs> of the world is raw chicken. Yes. <sighs> yes. So there is a dish, this is also Japanese, by the way, that's called torasashi. That is basically raw chicken sashimi. Or you can get a torawasa, which is a chicken tartare. Mm. So yeah, you can get salmonella and campylobacter, another terrible bacterial disease. But again, I guess it's really all in the prep. So making sure you use the best chicken. And if you know that like the bacteria really live in the chicken's intestinal tracts, I guess with the right preparation, you could technically eat the slices of raw chicken and be okay. I don't recommend it. But they do serve this at some yakitori spots in Japan. And you know, if you want to try it here in the US, you can get raw chicken at a restaurant in Berkeley, California. And the restaurant's called Ipuku, and they do a raw chicken tartare with raw quail egg. 
is there something cultural in Japan about like anti cooking or <laughs> pro rasta or danger? I don't, I don't know. If anyone listening knows, has experience with this, or knows more about Japanese culture and whether this theme is rooted in something specific, like please let mm-hmm. us know. We would love to know. We would love any explanation, honestly. <laughs> please tell us. <laughs> but you know, you don't need to eat expensive fugu to get poisoned. <laughs> You don't have to be like this man who only eats raw meat. 29-year-old Daniel has a typical varied diet, except for one freaky habit. Daniel has been obsessed with raw meat for the past six years. He feeds his habit four times a week in pound after pound of raw beef, eating whole steaks pulled right from the packaging. Mm. Even raw chicken. There are plenty of everyday foods that could kill you. So in our French fry episode, we talked about potatoes being poisonous and killing people like royals. Can't eat the eyes. Can't eat the eyes because of a poisonous alkaloid that's found in potatoes. It's the stuff that helps the potato guard itself against insects. There are things like apple seeds and peach pits. Those can be poisonous, too. They have what is called cyanogenic glycosides that, when it's broken down in our bodies, turns into hydrogen cyanide. Whoa. But I mean, don't worry too much because you would have to eat like almost 200 apple seeds <laughs> okay. to die. But I mean, there are poisons found in all of these things, uh, you know, in the peach pits, in the apple seeds, in the cherry pits. Um, Being poisoned was the pits. <laughs> so you do not, do not want to eat those seeds. That's right. Another everyday food that could poison you? Yes. Red lobster cheddar bay biscuits. What? How dare you? I don't believe it. I won't believe it. (laughs) This story is not true at all, but it's one of my favorite (laughs) viral internet stories from 2013. The story popped up online, and it was about a food writer in Arkansas who ate 437 Cheddar Bay biscuits (laughs) from a red lobster and ended up in a coma. It was such a crazy story, and it was published by this publication called the Rock City Times, which is a, a satirical news site, but it got picked up by tabloids around the world. So the Sun was republishing this, the Daily Mail, of course they uh, were. Mirror, and then everyone just picked it up. But it was not true. Uh, the author was just inspired to write this joke after he was at a Red Lobster eating biscuits with his friend. And if you've had those Cheddar Bay biscuits before, oh my god, they are so freaking good. I mean, I don't know that I could eat 437 of them, but I could eat 37 of them. I could too. You know, you can buy that mix. <gasps> the Bisquick Cheddar Bay? Yeah. You can buy the mix, like a powdered mix, to make those things. Oh, my God. Um, BRB, I'm heading to the store <laughs> to get some Cheddar Bay biscuits. Please hold. <laughs> what I love in this article, the guy wrote that doctors believe the butter from the biscuits have blocked signals coming from the man's brain. <laughs> and it went on to say that the doctors drained two gallons of butter from the man's stomach. Oh. Um, I know. Oh. Just the visual. I mean, our stomachs can only hold a few liters of food, so two gallons of butter. It's like a fatberg. You know the fatbergs that grow in in like sewage systems and water systems? What are the fatbergs? Oh, God. Don't Google it. You're all going to Google it. Tell me about these fatbergs. Fatbergs are the fat that is on our trash. (gasps) So if you throw away butter wrapper, there's fat on it. If you dump like what's a little bit that's left in a vegetable oil, if you jump grease down in the sink, all the fat isn't soluble. Right. 
So it finds each other in <gasps> sewer systems and water treatment systems. And the fat will glom onto itself and grow and grow and create fatbergs like icebergs <gasps> that block sewage and water systems. And they have to go in with like chainsaws. Whoa. And break up these fatbergs. So I'm just imagining a fatberg in this guy's colon. <laughs> yes. The Cheddar Bay <laughs> fatberg. But what a way to go. You don't look very well, Fanny. I feel fine. Are you sure it wasn't that gray kind of lamb or you ate a lot of that weird chicken? Was it that? No. I'm, I, I feel fine. I think you'd just feel better if you threw up. I don't have, I don't have to throw up. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Get away from me! What did we eat? Sinks are gone. What are you doing? It's coming out of me like lava. In case you were wondering, there is a National Poison Prevention Week, which is the third full week of March every year. And this was something that was established by Congress in 1961. And I don't know if you remember doing this like as a kid, but in school, they always had like poison prevention lessons. (laughs) Did you ever do that or was that just me? (laughs) I probably did. I don't remember that off the top of my head. But what I do remember is watching a video in Home Ec Mm -hmm. called The Danger Zone. And it was all about like what temperature you need to cook your food to you know if you're under that you're in the danger zone and so there'd be like people cooking and they'd be like oh the chicken's done and then like a demonic chef spirit would come out and be like yes you're in the danger zone I don't remember what temperature anything was supposed to be. I don't remember how I was supposed to know that anything was cooked thoroughly. But I 100% remember the demonic chef going, come to the danger zone. Um, so, Oh, my gosh. Good job, Transit Middle School. You tried. It didn't stick. Even the demonic chef did not get you to remember what temperature your chicken needed to be. I mean, there's only so much my like 12 year old brain was going to receive. And is it going to be like the number or is it going to be the demonic chef? Yeah, totally the demonic chef. I think he would like come out of the pantry or something. If he, like it was like a whole, a whole thing. So um, I wish I had seen that video. I feel ripped off now. Listeners, if you can find that thing. Yeah, I'll go on an Internet hunt. And try to find that thing. Awesome. Please do. I just remember things like warnings about household items and products that Mm. could poison you. Don't ingest this. Keep it locked in your cabinets. There's a great episode of Radio Lab about the crisis prevention hotline. Yeah, because there's the line you can call in case you or someone you know might have ingested a poison or was poisoned. Right. Apparently, like 99% of the calls are nonsense. 99% Mm. 99% of the time, it's just as somebody's like, my dog ate a stick of butter. And they're like, he's going to have the poops. But yeah, <laughs> my kid ate hand lotion. Well, <laughs> it's going to be gross for you. <laughs> anyway, tell me about National Poison Prevention Week. Each year, the Poison Council holds a children's artwork contest oh, God. to raise awareness. So nothing like children's doodles to warn you against poisonous items and products. I 100% need to see those drawings. What do you think the drawings are? Just like X's over eyes. Someone just like vomiting blood <laughs> with the bottle of Windex in their hand. That's what I would have drawn. <laughs> 
would have worked really hard to make it very real, too. <laughs> Little Leah. <laughs> you asked for poison. I'm trying to warn people. It's a very important matter, guys. <laughs> so there's a, an actual proclamation Ooh. for National Poison Prevention Week. So, you know, these proclamations make it very official. Oh, fish. And the latest one has a little stats in it. So, you know, we have these commemorations and it's always because of whereas, right? <laughs> yeah. Each year, the nation's poison control centers answer more than 2.6 million calls. But 90% of them are like, my dog ate the butter. Yeah. <laughs> and 93% of poisonings do occur in people's homes. So, Anna, I think you're going to talk about probably some of these poisonings <laughs> that have happened in people's homes. Oh, yes. And I can't wait to hear more about that. <laughs> A lot of poisonings happen within families, in homes, mm -hmm. with household items and food. Because most poisons you need to ingest. Mm-hmm. Either making food in a way that uh, will not settle so well with your family members or putting poison in them. Just like, here, eat all of these Cheddar Bay biscuits because <laughs> I love you. <laughs> Honey, we're having Cheddar Bay biscuits for dinner tonight. 400 of them. Save your appetite. Skip lunch. And we can't leave the table until you've eaten all of them. All right. Is that it for poison? Yeah. So that's it. That's it for poisons. That was awesome, Leah. Thank you for sharing all of that with oh, us. Oh, you're welcome. It was my pleasure. <laughs> Coming up next in the deep dish, Danny Murphy from Not Another True Crime Podcast joins us to talk about a few of the most fascinating and scandalous poisonings of all time. So this is Every Day is a Food Day, Season 2, Episode 2, Poison's Deep Dish. Ready? Mm -hmm. Three, two, two one. one. Ooh! That was right. so beautiful. Felt fresh. That was uh -huh. pretty solid. Yeah, that woke me up. <laughs> Longtime listeners, you all know that Leah and I, in addition to being obsessed with food stories, are obsessed with true crime stories, which was part of the inspiration for this episode. Mm -hmm. So in the deep dish today, we're going to indulge our love of true crime by telling you the stories of a few real poisonings throughout history. And who better to help us with that than the host of a actual true crime podcast, Danny Murphy. Yay! Hi! Danny is a comedian and digital creator who hosts Not Another True Crime podcast on Betches and a weekly gossip segment on SiriusXM's Bennington. He also created his own digital show, Venti Vents, where caffeinating meets complaining. Welcome, Danny. Hi, Hi, how are we? I mean, my favorite topics are food and crime. So it's really, I feel like I'm, I'm home now. <laughs> you are. Welcome home. Welcome. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh, we're so excited that you're here. <laughs> we're so excited to have you. We're excited to have a boy. Yeah. Ooh. I know. I'm so glad to finally get some testosterone in here. <laughs> I know. Bring it, Danny. Oh, I'll try to bring it as much as I can. My, I feel listeners know <laughs> the voice doesn't bring it, but you know, I, 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 I don't shave, so there's that. That can make up for it. <laughs> I've stopped doing that too. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> 
I know all these people saying they're vax and wax. I'm like, I did not know the second part was Mm-mm. as important as the first. I missed I missed that uh, news alert from Fauci, but I'll get on that at a set of time. Also, I don't know that that's necessary at this point. Like, the bar is low. People are lonely. Oh, yeah, yeah it's so low. Well, every time I get a delivery now, I'm just like, do you want to move in? I like... <laughs> I shaved my legs the other day just because I knew that if I waited any longer, the razor would not be able to handle it. <laughs> it was just, it was literally now or never. Yeah. <laughs> Did you need like a whetstone for the blade? Just to... <laughs> But today we're talking about poisons. So Danny, do you have any history of poisons? It's interesting. Um... Or can you not tell us? because you'll incriminate yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm like, um, what is the jurisdiction on? No, I feel like growing up, <clears throat> and this probably was the universal poison for any person that grew up in like a suburb or something that like poison ivy was the big thing. Ooh. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. And it's the big, because I grew up near a park that had like a little woodsy area. So everyone was like, so like, <gasps> that's what, like everyone's pointing out fucking like twigs, dandelions, thinking of poison <laughs> ivy. Everyone was so on edge. But I found out I don't get affected by poison ivy. <gasps> oh, you're one of the lucky ones. Because me and all my friends were playing around in something that ended up being poison ivy. And I was the only person who came out unscathed. Oh, my. Wow. Look at you. Is that your superpower, do you think? <laughs> I, I think it's my superpower. Or it's just like my immune system is so shitty. It just didn't even register. It's like Because I'm allergic to everything. That's why I truly thought it was like end of days for me. Because wow. if I like, I go outside right now, even the allergies, I'm like red eyed mm. fully. I, I can't eat any like like tree fruit or something like that. But poison ivy is fine with me. Interesting. Wow. What a strange huh. payoff. Do you think yeah. your immune system's just like, oh, we have bigger fish to fry here. I can't be worried. I can't be bothered. <laughs> Right? They can't be bothered or just like karma being the truest bitch ever because the amount of times I go outside is so minimal. (laughs) The amount of times I face to face with poison ivy now is just truly non-existent. I don't camp. I don't even go on hikes. I don't walk that far. I'm in the city. So it doesn't really do anything for me. But it's nice to know. There were some moments last year where I really thought we were all going to be Hunger Gamesing it. Mm -hmm. So it's good to know I could survive in the woods for a little bit. Yeah, you really could. Have you ever tried pufferfish? I did not know it was a food that you could eat. You shouldn't eat it. <laughs> no, right? Because it'll fucking kill you. Right? <laughs> that is true. That's kind of one of those things. That is just truly survival of the most adapted out to play. It's like, what dumb idiot out there would look at a puffer fish and say, I'm going to eat that. Like, it's like, you're you're asking for yeah. it to get poisoned then or attacked. Like, who would look at a puffer fish and think that's delicious? Right. Things got thorns on it. Yeah. It's basically telling you, don't eat me. But there is the pufferfish emoji. Mm-hmm. Mm. Have you yeah. used it? I low-key love the pufferfish emoji. What? Because I... Yes. Well, yeah, we are behind and missing out. <laughs> oh my gosh, I know. Oh, it's for no, it it, it means nothing. But I'm <laughs> always, because I feel like I am one of those texters where I like to always ha- make the text like, exclamation point. So like no one thinks I'm mad at them when I'm texting. Uh-huh. But then I look back and I'm like, these are too many exclamation points. <laughs> What can I do to kind of like <laughs> make it seem more chill? So I'll just throw in random emojis just like because <laughs> I'm so nervous anyone will hate me. So I've been using the pufferfish a lot. I use a lot of like just like the random stones. Confetti's more of a classic, mm-hmm. but I kind of just really divvy up. There's a lot of unknown emojis out there that you can use to really diffuse tension. And the pufferfish is one I of can them. just see like a friend text and your friend is like, road hazard sign? What is yeah. <laughs> yeah. road hazard sign? Road hazard monkey raindrop spiral. Is he mad at me? 
So that's just what I was going to say. I was like, I've never like told anyone I do that really, like when I'm texting them. So they probably are just like hieroglyphic decoding, being like, what the fuck? Like, do you mean something's fishy? Like, yeah. are you throwing coffee? Like, what? Like, can I send you like a Bior strip, which I'll always take? You know what I mean? Yeah. They're just trying to decipher a pictogram. <laughs> I guess it's always just like a national treasure situation going on. I would actually take a redone Declaration of Independence only in emoji so people can understand Ooh. that laws can change. You know what I mean? So yes. Ooh, it is a living document. <laughs> That's right. Okay, the next amendment will only be written in emojis. Yeah. It's just emojis. Leah and I had the thought that we should start a movement to assign a meaning to pufferfish. Yeah. So if we did that, what meaning or kind of meaning could the pufferfish symbolize? I kind of feel, and I mean, this is something well, hopefully now that like life is starting to return to normal ish, ish, ish. I loved me and my friends called like the bang bang where it's like after brunch and you're still hungry, you go to eat another meal. And I feel the puffer fish would be perfect for that because it's like bloated, Uh but like smiling a little bit. So it's like, (laughs) I'm ready to eat more. I probably don't need to, but I will have more. Um, Okay. I love this. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. It works. Well, and also, Leah, you told us about the uh, extreme eaters and overeaters. So there's still a danger in there. <laughs> there is. Am I going to be like the Cheddar Bay Biscuit dude? I don't know. We can only hope. <laughs> it, there is definitely. You play with fire, bang banging, puffer fishing, because there is a most. You will end up with a stomach ache at the very least. Yeah. Or just like regret. <laughs> and you kind of like put yourself into a coma after that. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and at that point, when you're ready for the second bang, you have forgotten how many of those mimosas you have ingested. Mm-hmm. Oh, fully. And everything sounds like a great idea after that third mimosa. Oh, it's uh-huh. so good. And well, the, the biggest thing, and this is what I can't wait to go back to, it's just like when you don't, when you just, your drink never empties, so it never refills. So you're just like, I'm still on one. It's like, no, five pitchers have come to your table. Like, <laughs> Jerry dismissed like whole situation. Yeah, but it's just so, it's like, oh, magical. And you're just down for anything, exactly. Mm-hmm. I love that. I say we go yeah, with me that. Too. I love it. <laughs> so listeners, once we are all allowed to go back and socialize into the world and you feel like double featuring your brunch or your meals, we <laughs> want you to use the pufferfish and you know what if you're still at home if you're still social distancing it and you want two lunches we're with you uh behind yeah. you safety first uh, oh six feet behind you because if they're social distancing they don't want us Ooh, that close behind them exactly right yes <laughs> that's even more fun you could just have different things like in your dining room than in your kitchen you know what i mean just make each place your own brunch setup oh i like that it's very biased to people who don't live in the city because you don't really have, you run out of space and rooms pretty fast. But you know, you can be crazy You're eating in your living room because it is also your kitchen. I get it. <laughs> oh, exactly. I lived in New York for 15 years. I get that. I get that. <laughs> That's the vibe. Yeah. Now that we have solved the mystery of the pufferfish emoji, shall we move into talking about poisonings? Yes. 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 <laughs> wrong you only think i guessed wrong that's what's so funny i switched glasses when your back was turned ha <laughs> you fool you fell victim to one of the classic blunders the most famous is never get involved in a land war in asia but only slightly less well known is this never go in against a sicilian when death is on the line <laughs> There are so many poisonings to choose from. So we got all the way back to Socrates, mm-hmm. rocking that hemlock, Rasputin, half the characters in Hamlet, <laughs> right? Fidel Castro's poison-laced scuba diving suit, courtesy of the CIA. 
that charmer, Marshall Applewhite, and his uh, Heaven's oh, Gate God, yeah. followers, and um, pretty much anyone who criticizes Vladimir Putin. So <laughs> hang in there, Navalny. <laughs> hang in there, Navalny. Hang in there, but also only have like closed water bottles. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just to be safe. If yeah. the seal is broken, do not drink out of it. <laughs> do yeah. not. Navalny, mm-hmm. be smart. I know you don't want to drink out of the toilet, but I'm saying. It dilutes. <laughs> now might be the time to start a shared water source. That's all I'm saying. Although I would not put it past Putin to just poison the whole. Probably. Yeah. yeah not just at poison all. the whole system. Be like, we'll get him eventually. <laughs> anyway, is it coming for us now? I know. What have we done? Every single time I talk about any person, I'm just like, this is it. It's usually it's from Putin to Oprah. You know what I mean? I'm just always worried someone with a lot of money will be like, okay, I don't like your town. We're really paranoid about the maple syrup cartel and the National Pork yeah. Board. Like, they are intense. Mm-hmm. They will take you down. So They seem scary, but luckily, I mean, for at least you have a, little, a few months because, like, travel restrictions are still a little in place-ish. So it's too much paperwork to go from Canada to America right now. True. But in a few months. True. That's a, All right. That's so let's insult everyone. Right now, (laughs) while we have the chance. (laughs) So a lot of options, but I've narrowed it down to my top four favorite poisonings of all times. I'm just surprised you were able to narrow it down to four. There's so many. It was hard. Yeah. But I really wanted to give the people like a breadth of time periods, Mm -hmm. you know, different personalities, methods. Uh, It was hard to find two different arsenic poisonings because there are a lot of unhappy wives throughout history. (laughs) Like a lot. (laughs) When divorce isn't an option, people get creative. That's all mm-hmm. I'm saying. Yeah, I no joke wonder if arsenic prices uh, rose during the pandemic when everyone just stuck together. <laughs> I wonder if people, you never know. I'm just being 100 right here. You probably. Supply demand, guys. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's a tough time. Our first poisoning, we're going to go back, travel with me back. Diddly, 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 diddly. Mm-hmm. We're traveling back to the first century, Rome. That is insane. Whoa. Yeah. I'm so bad at history. I'm like, that's not a real time. But I <laughs> I'm like, the first century is a thing? That's like dragons and stuff, right? (laughs) You know what I mean? Our first poisoner is a woman named Locusta, who lived in ancient Rome in the first century. So Locusta was born around the year 20 AD, which is apparently a year. I'm like, what? In Gaul, an outer province of Rome that is now part of France. And she went into training as a healer an apothecary, a chemist. And during that training, she learned all the both positive and negative properties of, you know, plants, herbs, chemical compounds, things like that. Mm-hmm. And she said to herself, everyone is using the good uses of these materials, but no one's taking advantage of the dangerous uses. <laughs> And poisonings were not unheard of. There were a lot of like political rivals. There were a lot of rich relatives that, you know, suddenly succumbed to a heart attack and things like that. So she thought mm. this could be big business. Basically, she identified a gap in the market oh. hey, you and know applied what? her skill set. Mm-hmm. She had her goals in goal or wherever she was. You know what I mean? She was meeting re- and reaching that. Yeah. <laughs> so some historians have referred to her as a necro entrepreneur. Oh, which wow. I believe in the 90s, I had a shirt from Hot Topic that said Necro Entrepreneur 2. <laughs> I think I had that also, and I'd wear it with my Jinkos. <laughs> I wore it with my flare jeans and my lace chokers. 
And Gwen Stefani was the only person who understood you. She's still the only person that understands me. <laughs> Honestly. Locusta's operation worked like this. She experimented with plants, opium, hemlock, nightshade, which Ooh. we learned about in our French fries episode. That's Comes right. from potatoes. Gotta nice. dig the eyes out, people. And she developed her own stable of poisons and began selling her services. She grew a reputation for discretion, which attracted wealthy clients, high-profile clients. And they also had the added benefit of if she got caught, they could pay her way out of prison. So Locusta grew her clientele. She grew her experience. She actually had two protégés. So, of course, they got called witches, etc. Oh, of course. I feel like any time a woman has a skill set or knowledge that a man could get paid for, she's a witch. Oh, exactly. And it still hasn't changed because now they just, well, now they just switched the first letter. Now they just say she's a bitch. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It really is so yeah. insane. Yeah, mm-hmm. seriously. <laughs> so in 54 AD, Locusta was hired by Empress Agrippina, who was the niece slash third wife of Emperor Claudius. That classic combo. <laughs> so Agrippina's plan was to convince her emperor slash uncle slash husband to name her son from a previous marriage, Nero, as his heir and then kill him. Oh. There were two challenges to this plan that she needed Locustus help with. Number one, Claudius was paranoid. He was surrounded by guards and food tasters. And two, Claudius had a very unhealthy relationship with food, although he's probably not the only Roman to do this. And so he used to purge his food after he ate it so he could eat more. Hmm. Wasn't it called a barfatorium, right? Yes. In theaters and arenas, the space where people walk in is called the vom, the vomitorium. Because in arenas, people used to gorge themselves and then they would like lean over the side of the edge into the entryway and vomit. They could do it again. Yeah. Can I say, one of the smarter things I invented, because there's some clubs in the East Village that really could benefit, because I have slip and slide, and it's not fun when you're walking by and God knows what. So if there was a controlled space, everyone could just go to, yeah. do their business, and head home. It really would, they should bring I agree, maybe like a dedicated stall in the restroom, yeah. something, just so there's a warning. <laughs> oh my God, just spitting gold here on this episode. <laughs> just vomiting gold. <laughs> So what he used to do, which is very graphic and poetic, is he had a special feather. (laughs) So he would keep this feather in his dining space. And then when he was done eating, he would shove it down his throat to tickle his throat to engage his gag reflex in order to throw up. So there was the official royal vomit feather. Wow. That feather looks nasty. (laughs) Let me tell you that (laughs) I mean, surely he's had, like, other feathers. I was thinking about this, and I was like, I feel like that would work once, and then it's just a spear. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's a crusty spear, too. It's a crusty, nasty spear. You don't even need to stick it down your throat to vomit. Just, like, get it close to you. Just get a whip. The snip. Yeah. So he's the emperor. He probably had more feathers at his disposal. Mm Mm-hmm. Locusta came up with a multi-part poisoning plan for Agrippina because part of Locusta's specialty was not just mixing poisons, mixing the substance. She would like design assassinations based on the specific (laughs) scenario that the poisons were going to be used. Okay. So Locusta gave Agrippina a poison to put on Claudius's mushrooms at dinner. 
But she also gave her a poison to lace the feather with. Oh. Because she was concerned that after he ate all his food, he would puke it up. So the poison might not have enough time to work. Um. So she got a foundational layer in with the mushroom poison. And then when he went to vomit it up, he did the laced poisoned feather like straight in his gullet. And when Claudius collapsed from all the poison, he called for his personal physician. But don't worry, because Lacusta had Agrippina pay him off. (laughs) And yep, there we go. She had it taken care of. (laughs) Full strategy. Full strategy. There was a PowerPoint, Mm -hmm. a timeline. Everything was color coded. (laughs) The org chart was there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it worked. Emperor Claudius died and Agrippina had convinced him to name her son Nero as his heir, which meant that Nero was now emperor. However, Agrippina, to cover her own ass, turned on Locusta. What? Denying having ever hired her, ever known her, and having any part in murdering the king. So Locusta got thrown in prison. No. No. Oh, that is so upset. I'm like, I'm sad now. Yeah, me too. I guess Julius Caesar wasn't the only one who got stabbed in the back. (laughs) (laughs) The bullying there. They really needed some anti-bullying PSAs Mm -hmm. down there in Rome. Yeah. Seriously. Agrippina, be best. (laughs) Be best. Be best. Be best. best. (laughs) This story is so interesting to me too, because I feel like it happens so much in a lot of crime cases I see that experts of a field that you can do for good, like a lot of doctors... Some of them do the flip side where they're like, oh, I can open up a person to save them. Right. Or I could just open up a person and kill. You know yeah. what I mean? It's very interesting. So I, it's weird to see how this has been happening since the ones. <laughs> right. The right. Exactly. Well, I read some quote that said, uh, you know, rule of thumb, poisons in small doses are medicine, but medicine in large doses are poison. Mm. Oh, oh, that is true. Because to Tylenol, great. Twenty-two Tylenol, not so great. Yeah, <laughs> that's very bad. Oh. Exactly. That is an interesting. I like that quote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So the following year, Lucista was still in prison, but Nero went to her and said that he would pardon her from all past and future crimes if Ooh. she would help him kill his stepbrother slash cousin, Claudius's son. Britannicus to avoid any, you know, potential challenges to the throne, uprisings, oh. etc. Hmm. Locusta was like, I'm here for it. <laughs> yeah, she's like, get me out of jail. <laughs> so she devised a plan for Nero. Now, apparently in Rome, it was customary to dilute wine with water to adjust its temperature. So Locusta arranged for Britannicus's wine to be served to him scalding hot. So when he received his wine scalding hot, he asked for cold water to cool it down. So they brought him a bowl of cool water that was filled with poison. Oh. Oh. Lacusta. She is tricky because she could have just put the poison with the cool wine at the beginning, but she made it a spectacle. Yeah, she really did. No, no, because the food tasters would taste the food and the wine, but not the water water. in the pitcher. Freaking genius. (laughs) Wow. Genius. Mm -hmm. It worked. Nero freed her, pardoned her, gave her the title. Are you ready for this? Of Imperial Poisoner. Mm. Lavished her with gifts and provided her with condemned prisoners to (laughs) experiment on. Oh, what a what an ending. (laughs) 
Do you think it was like in her benefits package? Yeah. <laughs> it had to go through HR. When she negotiated her contract, she's like, I will need a standing desk and some prisoners. <laughs> This went on for a while, but in 68 AD, again, another real year, the Roman Senate was sick of Nero's shit and overthrew him. Locusta couldn't exactly deny all the poisoning since that was literally her job title. So she was tried and sentenced to death in the year 69 AD. So there isn't a ton of specific recordings about Locusta, but author named Tacitus described in his annals, 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 (laughs) Not the anals, quite sure. The anals of his anals. <laughs> but hey, back in the day, they yeah, that was their thing. <laughs> I mean, it was Rome. It was yeah. Rome. It was no ancient Greece, but still. <laughs> so he wrote, "This was the famous Locusta, a woman lately condemned as a dealer in clandestine practices, but reserved among the instruments of state to serve the purposes of dark ambition." Ooh, that's kind of chic. <laughs> like, not a bad way to be remembered. Right. Yeah. Like, honestly, back then, I mean, it was a job title. So she was just doing her work. It's not her right. fault she was uh, climbing the corporate right. ladder. <laughs> I am loving the theme that poison kind of does correlate with strong women. You know, it's interesting that poison, although it was used for all these different things of political rivals and stuff, it is generally considered a weapon favored by women because it doesn't involve having to physically overpower someone. Mm-hmm. And because women throughout history have been responsible for food, cooking, right? it was pretty easy for them to integrate it into delivery vehicles. Yeah. That is really, oh, wow. Okay. So I wonder if like that song, That Girl is Poison, was really all about this. You never know. (laughs) I think it was actually slut shaming, but we can go with that too. (laughs) I feel like that's also just all of history. I think it was slut shaming. Mm -hmm. You're either a sludge, you're slut or a witch. That basically, yeah. and that is tail as old as You can as choose which one, but only those two. <laughs> or you could be, hopefully in between that, you're a boss bitch like Marie Fontenay Capelle. That's my two years of French coming hopefully Ooh, in clutch there. That was beautiful. Tell Très us bien. more. <laughs> Capelle, uh, a bon année. Uh, that's all I got. Oh. Uh, she was born in France. <laughs> this is 1816. A year that feels a little more real to me, but also mm-hmm. not that much. Sure. <laughs> No, the 1800s to me are just like Dickens, the Civil War, Victorian era all at once in my head. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Victorian secrets, not Victoria's (laughs) secrets. She was an aristocratic family member having a lot of fun like that, but orphaned. So she was sent to live with her aunt and uncle. I feel like that's how so many history stories start too. Mm -hmm. Like it's only history stories about an orphan who was sent to live with like an aunt somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) You know, she was vax and wax. She was trying to find a suitable husband. So I feel like what happened so much then, the uncle just like picked one for her. <laughs> you know, what yeah. love is in the air. It's like instead of coffee meets bagel, it's uncle meets marriage broker. <laughs> and they found Charles Lafarge oh. and staged a little meet cute for her at an opera. Ooh. Oh. <laughs> Which is cuter than I feel most uh, meetings that any person has now. So we'll give them that. Except for the fact that he was crude, like disgusting and like, 20 years older than her? Oh, no. That's your thing, that's your thing. It was not her thing. (laughs) (laughs) But of course, no one gave a shit what she thought. So, done deal. The reason I think they were trying so hard to set her up with him is because he had a big talk 
He kept on saying he was oh. like upper class, wealthy, had all these foundries. Oh. Which just sounds rich. You know what yeah. I mean? If someone <laughs> says like, I have a lot of foundries, I'm like, I don't need no boundaries. It could just be some rocks in his backyard, but it's, you yeah. call it a foundry. <laughs> After the wedding though, he brought Marie back to her home and she discovered the bitch was broke, bankrupt, <laughs> oh. <laughs> a lot of bad investments. And that the palatial estate that he had is such a big talk on. And he even brought pictures. Of, like, he drew pictures. <laughs> he drew drawings of the That's estate. That's Yeah. Uh, was a falling down monastery that was the result no. of yet another bad investment. So he was living there. <laughs> oh, my gosh. This is like a terrible catfish. Totally. A <laughs> terrible catfish. But also, I feel like the situation of any apartment I've ever gone to live in. <laughs> Well, they call any apartment luxury now. Like, luxury apartment in corrugated steel. The sink is the toilet. Yeah. Oh, that's exactly it. They're like, there's plumbing here. You're like, okay, thank you. Like, sure. (laughs) The thing is, if she was in love with him, maybe she could have seen past this. I don't know, though. But because the fact that she did not want to marry this man, she was not attracted to this Mm -hmm. man. This man was gross. She wanted to leave, but weirdly divorce... uh, wasn't a thing yeah. back then. No, no, no. Weren't women, what's the word for it? Property? Yeah. yeah. Property, yeah. So she couldn't leave. So what do you, what, what, how, you know, you, maybe, there weren't group chats back then. You couldn't be like, guys, how do I deal with this? You got to get creative. Uh-huh. Right. Look, if you're going to limit somebody's options, mm-hmm. you got to get to poison. <laughs> so <laughs> it's sort of kind of an inspiring tale. And I know it's maybe maybe Outlook Hazy on poisoning, but she was so beat, like she was beating herself up. She even was threatening to take her own life, really down in the dumps. She looked in the mirror. She said, Mary, I am done pretending to be head over heels in love with this man. I'm going to find a thing to do. And then she sent him, well, here's the thing. She sent him a fruitcake as a gesture of love. And he immediately became a little ill. Oh, no. Ooh. What was in the fruit? Not uh, was it a bad apple or a good poison? <laughs> it's those freaking little green round things. Yeah, it's those little cake. green jelly things they put yeah. on the top. I bet she right? rolled those in arsenic. Mm-hmm. That's a callback. So, like the good loving wife that she was, uh, she was feeding him soup, sugar water, even eggnog. I love how they tried to help people back in the day. They're like, "Here's eggnog. Imagine giving someone <laughs> who's sick eggnog." But weirdly, he kept getting sicker. Oh, that's strange. The eggnog wasn't helping. (laughs) Right. Weirdly, the combo of soup and eggnog. Either that or something else mixed into it. Uh, And then family members started to come take care of Charles because they're like, this is all hands on deck situation. I don't know where these family members were before to cut a boy a check so he didn't have to live (laughs) in this monastery. That was run down. Besides the point. Just like orphan story always starts with going to an uncle. There's always a cousin that gets involved with a relationship. Mm, nosy, skeptical cousin. Mm-hmm. Skeptical cousin. Ugh. Anna Brune was his cousin. And she got a little suspicious when she saw that Marie was stirring, just a full-on stirring in public, a white powder from a little box into his eggnog and soup. <gasps> Normal. Normal. Let me t- Like, it could have just been Ovaltine. Be sure to drink your Ovaltine. Maybe it was like you know what I mean? yeah. fiber powder. You know, Myber. he was a regular. It's whey. It's whey protein. Whey. <laughs> Immediately, Marie was like, oh, it's orange blossom powder, which does sound delicious, by the way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anna brought this to the doctor with suspicions that Marie might be drugging him, but the doctor did not believe her at all. And Anna saved some of the eggnog and soup and hid it from Marie. Ooh. All I'm visualing now, though, is soup and eggnog under a bed sitting for a week. <laughs> 
I mean, That's... just doing that will turn into poison. <laughs> just how thick do you think the film on oh. top of? <laughs> Truly. And they just probably look the same. <laughs> so as you all at home are vomiting right now, just imagining that Charles was also vomiting and he was getting even more sick. And the family found out that the day after Charles returned from a trip, Marie had asked a gardener to buy arsenic. <gasps> Which she did say was to make a paste to control the rats in their beat-down, run-down house. So kind of, mm-hmm. I don't blame a bitch. Right. <laughs> Though no one saw any rats. That mm. tracks so far. That tracks. Yeah. And also maybe no one saw rats because of the arsenic. Right. Yeah, it, was it was working. working. <laughs> yeah. Now kind of more, like the cousin stole Marie's little box again. And the family, she was telling the family everything like that. They went to another doctor with the suspicions. They believed them. But it was too late and Charles died i know rest you know poor little poor little charles he went to the foundry in the sky yeah Yeah. (laughs) so the family went to the justice of peace ordered a post-mortem on the on charles and testing of the food anna had set aside and the rat paste i did not know science was caught up with this yeah ish this seems like csi work right like But like, how reliable was this? I feel like we're still in the era of if it glistens under a full moon, it's poison. (laughs) No, exactly. It it was as reliable as fingerprinting was in the 90s. (laughs) So they were doing this thing. In the autopsy, they removed his stomach to test for arsenic and then buried him. Goodbye. Mm. But testing the remains was a little questionable. The scientists used very outdated methods. Doi, because it was... <laughs> everything then was outdated. <laughs> they ran t- a lot of tests, had all these diff results. The only thing that was conclusive was that the rat paste turned out to be just water and flour, and the white powder in Marie's little box that the cousin stole was arsenic. Oh. So she was buying arsenic purportedly for the rat paste, but then just like making... Like, basically cookie dough as rapes? Yeah, that's just like my sourdough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was just these little rats having the best life ever, being like, thank you, Marie. Like, just, like, doing a whole little, like, like adorable thing. Just, like, front, oh, s'il vous plaît. <laughs> well, some of the rats were like, I'm watching my carbs, Marie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this led to Marie's arrest. So the trial was actually very interesting because the media and public were captivated. And I feel like this was kind of the time when that became a thing, where it was kind of like mm-hmm. Chicago-y, just like the new person on trial, everything going on type of situation. They gave Marie alternate descriptions as either a sad, pretty young widow accused of a crime or a manipulative, ambitious girl who used her feminine wills to gain his fortune, even though if you listened, she got a broke down house. Right, right. There were no foundries. Yeah. <laughs> it, was just, it was just like nothing. But I love this. The defense argued that the arsenic test should be thrown out because they had been botched so many times. Plus, they did not use this new standard, which was the Marsh test, which, quick Google search, just Hmm. looks like evil scientists. It looks (laughs) Frankensteinian. It's kind of like, I can only assume it's like how Chemical X was made in the Powerpuff Girls, where it was just like, (laughs) beaker broke, things everywhere. You either get arsenic or triplets. (laughs) (laughs) Let's hope arsenic. Uh, yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> Truly pick your poison. <laughs> Children are poison. Uh, just getting to the parents out there. So here's the thing. It gets like mixed with like zinc and acid, creates a gas. The gas makes the flame. If there's arsenic, like metallic film deposits. Like, there's so many moving parts to this that I feel like it's just a recipe for actual disaster. Mm-hmm. 
they're testing like bits of Charles. They're running like bits of Charles through this test. Well, I think this is what had to happen. They do like to test the bits of Charles. <gasps> so okay. the judge had to, or wanted these tests to be done, but they ran out of his organs. So they had to exhume <laughs> the body to get more samples. This man is not resting in peace. He's literally resting in pieces. Because <laughs> they're just chopping off a finger saying, well, let's try that out. Oh my God. Yeah. But the body was so badly decomposed that he was more like a paste. <gasps> oh no. Ew. 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 So did they get like a melon baller, like an ice cream scoop, and they were just like, you just scoop it? <laughs> Scooping it up? We need three scoops of Charles. <laughs> I know this made me really think of wanting to be cremated because I don't want to be a paste. Yeah. No, I don't, don't want to be a And that's just a mental note I wrote myself. <laughs> They hired a Spanish uh, scientist, Matthew Afila, who was trained in the Marsh test to come perform it in front of public. I fucking love old school courts where it's like, yeah, just do this test in public. And like everyone's probably right. watching. <laughs> the results were positive. And Marie was convicted Ooh. to life in prison. Wow. Ooh. She went on to inspire a lot of like writers uh, like George Sand and Alexandre Dumas, who supported her. Oh. And uh, mm. Andre de Balzac wrote a poem lamenting her case. So she so she kind of inspired a nation, if you will. Wow. Wow. So people still took her side. People still, hey, you know what? I'm in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to say. You know what? If uncle had just asked her what she wanted right. with her life. Yeah, exactly. Let oh. a bitch just go to the opera in peace. Mm-hmm. Don't make her have to like date a 50-year-old man after it. <laughs> right. I wonder if she was in prison and she was like, mm, worth it. <laughs> Better than I a busted-ass like, monastery. I feel like the prison people, like, all the people she was with probably, like, thought she was a hero. So at least she has that. Yeah. When I was reading all these stories about women poisoning their husbands, honestly, I just assume they deserve it. <laughs> it's really hard to be like, oh, you're bad. I'm like, but he was a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> but what did he do? Yeah, exactly. Let's reverse the victim blaming. Let's flip around the uh-huh. victim blaming here. For once in our lives. For once. Yeah. Let's flip it around. <laughs> That was amazing. Yeah. Thank you for telling us about Madame Marie Lafarge. Oh, of course. Oui. Ooh, what a character. Oof. I'm telling you, poison stories are people's stories, too. He had it coming. He had it coming. He only had himself to blame. If you'd have been there, if you'd have seen it, I bet you you would have done the same. Fast forward a little. We're still in the 1800s, so whole Dickens Civil War, Little Women, I'm assuming. We're going to talk about a woman named Amy Dugan Archer Gilligan. So Amy Dugan was born in Milford, Connecticut in 1873 to a modest family, you know, like lower middle class family. But the family had a serious history of mental illness. Mm. It is said that seven out of the 10 children in the Dugan family had struggles with mental illness, were treated, and even institutionalized. There's some genetic predispositions here, but I'm sure that won't come into play at all. Yeah. In Amy's story. Maybe. Debatable. Debatable. In the year 1896, at the age of 23, Amy married her first husband, James Archer. They had a daughter. And after a few years still living in Connecticut, they moved into the estate of a man named John Seymour, who was pretty elderly, frail. And so Amy took care of John in return for rent. Okay. Okay. You know, trade off. Mm-hmm. I'd, uh, I'd spoon some pudding for free rent. Hello. <laughs> oh, honey. 
I'd spend a lot for free rent. Yeah. <laughs> so after John died in 1904, Amy and James rented the estate from his heirs and opened a home that they called Sister Amy's Nursing Home for the Elderly. Now, though Amy was a Christian, she was a church-going Christian, she was not a nun <laughs> at all. She did not take those. Mm-hmm. She would, did not appear in Sister Act. She was not a nun. It was more of like a marketing thing. Ah, uh, okay. You're okay. safe with me. I'm a sweet little nun, right? Mm-hmm. In 1907, they moved to Windsor, Connecticut and bought a big red brick building, and they turned that into the Archer Home for the Elderly People and Chronic Invalids. Rolls off the tongue. <laughs> I don't know that that name would fly now, but we'll go with it. So they had about 10 to 20 residents at any given time, and they were cared for primarily by Amy. Amy did everything in this establishment. So she did the cooking and the cleaning. She managed the facilities. She did the medication. She gave, you know, medical attention and care to the patient. So it was really Amy's enterprise. Mm -hmm. And how the business was set up was that the patients could either pay a lump sum up front or pay weekly, but the preferred method of payment was signing over their life insurance policy to the archers. Hmm. Okay. No red flags. Right. (laughs) Nothing at all. This wasn't a common thing yet. People, you know, didn't move across country as much and stuff. So so their elderly members of the family really stayed with the family. Mm-hmm. So this was mostly people who either didn't have any family or for whatever reason, their family was very far away and they couldn't be taken care of. But because retirement homes were a new thing, there was no oversight. <laughs> right. There oh, were no shit. laws. There was no regulation. It was the Wild mm-hmm. West, but really old people. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, you know, Amy had a reputation for being a churchgoer. She had this sort of sweet, pious, like, grandma vibe. Mm-hmm. But there were some rumors of bad living conditions and neglect. And actually, in 1909, they were sued by the family of a patient for poor care and had to pay them a large settlement. So there was, you know, rumblings. Ooh. Something was rotten in the state mm-hmm. of Windsor. Windsor. <laughs> So then Amy had a spate of, like, let's just say bad luck. In 1910, James suddenly died of kidney inflammation or nephritis, uh, which could be caused by an infection or high blood pressure or, I don't know, arsenic poisoning. Mm. So that was very devastating, you know, to Amy and her daughter. But Amy was able to carry on and keep running the home because fortuitously, Two weeks before James's death, she took out a life insurance policy on him. Well, what a coincidence. Really like a forward thinker. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Really had an eye on the future. In 1913, she remarried a man named Michael Gilligan. So now she has all her three last names. He was a 56-year-old with four adult sons and a nice above-average bank account. Mm, He had the foundries. But tragedy struck again, and three months after their wedding, Michael suddenly died of a bilis attack, or severe gastritis. Whoa. Like, real bad IBS. Yeah. Death by IBS. (laughs) And again, fortuitously, Michael had just named Amy as his beneficiary in his will. So with that inheritance, she pushed through her grief, Mm -hmm. and she kept running the home. But people started to notice (laughs) that there were relatively high number of deaths of patients in the home. Mm. And, you know, they were elderly and maybe could live on their own. But these patients were not like at 
death's door. Like this wasn't a hospice. Okay. It was a retirement home. Like they were able to, yeah. Yeah, they were still able to get around and they were- Zumba. (laughs) They had aqua aerobics. (laughs) Like bingo night was fierce. (laughs) One of these patients who had died was a man named Franklin Andrews, who was 60 years old. And Franklin was pretty healthy and robust. He did yard work. He did janitorial work for Amy around the building, the facilities. And he did have some family, but they lived pretty far away. Franklin frequently sent letters to his family about sort of how he was doing, what was going on in the nursing home. And he did mention that there were a surprising number of deaths of residents in a letter he sent in early 1914, which I don't know how you casually mention that. <laughs> of like... So I was like, by the way. Like, hey, cousin Jane, people are dropping like flies, but don't worry. You know, another day in paradise. (laughs) One morning in May of 1914, though, he collapsed while painting a fence outside the home. And he died two days later of a stomach ulcer. Mm. So his sister Nellie came to claim the body and to, you know, take his belongings. But when she was cleaning out his room, she found some recent notes between Franklin and Amy where they talked about him giving her a large sum of money, which he did. Hmm. Nellie's spidey sense went off and she was like, something right here. She went to the police with her suspicions, but they did not listen to her. If there's two things that I know from all of the crime and murder and cult shows I watch, it's that law enforcement agencies do not talk to each other and no one listens to women. Oh, yep. Or if they talk to each other, it's just to ignore or bury something. So, (laughs) (laughs) Right. How many documentaries I watched that a woman goes to the cops and it's like, I literally saw him murder someone. And they're like, nah, when if they just said, oh, really? Mm -hmm. Then like shows over. Exactly. Exactly. That's the thing. There should not be a true crime genre, because if the police did their job always correctly, there'd be no there'd be no eight part series. (laughs) Be a one part series. Yeah, it'd just be one part. And it'd be the nightly news with Anderson Cooper. And he's just saying this person was caught. (laughs) She didn't give up. She went to the local paper. Mm. The Hartford Current. And they picked up the story. They did their own investigation and they found that the death rate at Amy's home was way higher than any other comparable homes for the elderly in New England. Whoa. Okay. Damn. But the person who actually figured out that it was arsenic was somebody at the paper who was already interested in this story. And that was the guy that wrote the obituaries. People forget the obituary writers, right? (laughs) They've got all of the clues right there. (laughs) It's a thankless job. This guy was like, Sister Amy's home again? He noticed that there were so many deaths coming from Sister Amy's home and that they were all had this similar like intestinal GI (laughs) ulcer situation, Mm -hmm. right? So he decided to go rogue and do some of his own sleuthing. And he found out that Amy was a frequent purchaser of arsenic. Oh. And that in fact, in one recent order, she had actually bought enough arsenic to kill a hundred people. Oh, yeah, yeah. Amy. How did they sell it that much? Yeah. <laughs> right? Like a Costco? <laughs> yeah, it's a little Costco. <laughs> Where's the DEA on this? Aren't they tracking these purchases? (laughs) Like they're tracking people who buy manure, but like not this. (laughs) So the newspaper printed their investigation under the headline, The Murder Factory of Windsor. That got some attention. Mm -hmm. After the newspaper scooped them, the cops finally paid attention and decided to do their own investigation. They sent an undercover informant 
who posed as a wealthy widow and went to Amy's house. She actually enrolled as a patient, moved in, and was reporting back to the police on what she saw. Oh, that is juicy. I know. And she finally confirmed that Amy kept her stash of arsenic in the kitchen pantry. It's like Clue. It was Amy in the kitchen pantry with the arsenic. <laughs> with the arsenic, yes. <laughs> so 1916, Amy is arrested for the murders of five people, including Franklin and her second husband, Michael. Never saw that coming. <laughs> Amy claimed innocence and portrayed herself as, you know, just this regular churchgoer. She was a single mom. She was a widow. She was working hard to take care of these vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. She also claimed that the arsenic was to fight rat and bed bug infestations, which I feel like we've heard before, yeah. somewhere before. I feel like we've heard somewhere before. Yeah, that's what it brings a bell. During the investigation, the police discovered that her second husband, Michael's will, was actually a forgery in Amy's handwriting. <gasps> they had the victim's bodies exhumed, tested using the Marsh test. Mm. Oh, classic. And all came up positive for arsenic. <laughs> Sister Amy, not a sis. Uh-uh. No, she was a Party City sister. Like she got that <laughs> noun outfit from Party City and just was causing chaos. But it was the sexy nun outfit. So it was like really awkward. It's really awkward when she was making the rounds. So Amy was convicted of killing Franklin and sentenced to death. Mm. Her attorney appealed, got a new trial where Amy pled guilty by reason of insanity, mm. which the judge accepted. She was then sent to a mental institution where she remained for the next 45 years of her life until her death in 1962, when she was 88 years old. What? Wow. After Amy's conviction, a more thorough investigation of the nursing home deaths was conducted, and they determined that between 1911 and 1916, so over five years, Amy had poisoned at least 48 residents Oh my God. of her home for the elderly. Oh, my God. That shit's crazy. Isn't that crazy? Now, that's someone who does not get a pass. Right. (laughs) Yeah, that's a no-no. Yeah, that's a no-no. It's like, you understand Maria a little bit, but Amy, what were these people doing to you besides giving you business? Right? That Mm -hmm. is not a way to get loyalty from your customer base, Amy. Yeah, truly. Because that also, why, like, how long did she want the jig to go? Because I feel like some people are like, yeah, a lot of people are dying here. I don't know if I want to take my, like, parent here or grandparent. (laughs) All right, so we are in the 20th century. We time jumped. We made it. <laughs> we made it, guys. We quantum leapt we qu- into the 20th century. <laughs> we quantum leapt. And I feel mm-hmm. this poison will strike a chord with any person who is as avid a Netflix binger as me. And I feel like you guys are. Oh, yeah. This is oh, definitely a yes. treat for our fellow true crime sleuths. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. For all y'all out there. So, of course, we're going to be talking about the Rajneeshis. Yes. Yeah. Remind the people the Rajneeshi were the group that the documentary series Wild Wild Country is all about. All about. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, if you were as obsessed with that, this is strap in <laughs> for a little rehash and a little new info and just we hope you're not eating your greens right now. <laughs> Put on your crimson red dashiki. That's right. And let's get into Which, this. Which I mean is my color. So like I'm like half ready to join. <laughs> I was like, that's my thing also with a cold. I'm like a second away. Like if someone tr- tries to sell me on it, I feel like I'd easily fall, fall, fall into Same it. Same here. I love a uniform. It's like one less thing for me to, have to <laughs> think <mean>? about. <laughs> like, uh, and everyone just looks, not, yeah, I'm like, okay, this is perfect. A little bit of a backstory about them. They followed Bhagwan Shi Rajneesh, who later rebranded himself as Asho, uh, who was an Indian guru and mystic who kind of, you know, just uh, preached sexual freedom and all that jazz, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) 
The followers were upper middle class baby boomers who were going on a spiritual journey in the 1970s. If you've got your parent a little drunk, (laughs) they'll tell you all about the 70s and (laughs) what it entailed even if you weren't in a cult. (laughs) Right. Well, it started in India in 74. It had over like 30,000 visitors and all this stuff. The government didn't totally love its vibe. Mm. Mm. So at 81, the Indian government low-key wanted $5 million back taxes. But it's okay because randomly God at that moment <laughs> reached out to our boy and told him, relocate to America. Do some spiritual <laughs> teachings there. Divine intervention. So convenient. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That Suze Orman is God. And she's like, get your ass out of here. Avoid these charges. So this is how they wound up in Wasco County in Oregon. They bought 64,000 acres of land. And this is where they started this elaborate commune or intentional community called the Rajneeshpuram. So the commune had 7,000 people, which that's too much for a commune for me. That's a lot. I mean, there are some rural states that don't have that many people in it. I'm pretty (laughs) sure Wyoming is at like (laughs) 6,500. Yeah. That's a lot of matching and a lot of people you had to like be like intentionally connected to. Right. I feel like 20 max is what you had. Right. God, right? The small talk. I cannot even imagine. (laughs) And also they kind of, they balled out. They had an airstrip. They had public transportation. They had water and sewage systems, restaurants, and its own zip code. Okay, brag. Uh, Literally hose in different area codes. (laughs) Just all in this area. (laughs) All your hose in one area code. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, in one area code. A Bhagwan receded from the public view, and then the group was represented and led by his like secretary, deputy, Ma'anad Sheila. And the followers, unshockingly, when they relocated to this area, started clashing with everyone else in Oregon. I have never been to Oregon, but I just imagine this isn't like the freewheeling vibe is not totally their uh, bread and butter, especially 7,000 people just popping up. <laughs> All dressed in red, in having loud orgies at all given hours. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. I love, yeah. Like, weirdly, they weren't down for just hippies getting it on all hours doing their thing, which I say, just, you know, get a sound machine, but, you know. Maybe I've lived in New York for too long. Earplugs are cheap and plentiful. Mm -hmm. Why harsh the vibe? Why? Yeah, join in on the fun. Of course, trouble, and by trouble, I mean the government not loving the vibe of a cult being over there. (laughs) There was more legal battles going on. 1,000 friends of Oregon have already filed a petition to have the buildings in Rajneeshpuram torn down. I would anticipate that Wasco County will go ahead and have the use of those buildings stopped and to have the buildings removed. In the courts, we took the position that farmland is for farming, ranch land is for ranching. They're not for cities. I said we will come in and seek action to require you to remove those buildings because they were never legally built. There are actions in the courts which uh, may, uh, in effect, cancel their city. How they responded to this, God, I guess, didn't jump in to say, now go to Canada (laughs) or go somewhere else. (laughs) They decided to run for office and take over the government of a nearby Antelope, Oregon. So they were were getting involved in politics, you know? Mm. They were making the change they wanted to see in the world. (laughs) This is their fight song. (laughs) That song still makes me just like shed a sad tear. A little emotion, yeah. In uh, November of 1984, they did want to expand, like we were talking about, their political power. They ran members as candidates in races for two out of the three county circuit court seats in Wasco County. Mm-hmm. Normal, you know, it seems normal until this election day. Because on the day of the election, a huge amount of people became violently <sighs> ill with food poisoning. Oh. 
So they weren't even feathering themselves. They were just <laughs> full on bomb.com. They just moved into the bombs. Just moved into yeah. the vomitoriums. They live there now. Mm-mm. 751 <gasps> people oh my contracted salmonella. 45 were hospitalized. Wow. No deaths. Okay. No All right. Deaths. No deaths. Just low food poison. The massive outbreak, Nadoi, caught uh, nationwide attention and CDC mm. intervention. They quickly blamed it on the mishandling of food at local restaurants. The election continued as planned, no real eyes and ears anywhere. Uh, and the Rajneeshis lost despite the low voter turnout because everyone was shitting bricks at a local hospital. <laughs> <laughs> So now we'll get into a tactic, which is now making me think, 2024, I am not going to any salad bars. <laughs> yeah, I'd probably That is a mental note. Yeah. Put a pin in that. So because though, because they first were blaming the food handlers, a year-long investigation by the government found that the massive poisoning was intentional and executed by the Rajneeshis. The people in the commune were educated and skilled, shout out to their local education, um, and they set up a chemical lab where they actually grew their own salmonella bacteria. That's low-key cool in a sense. You know what I mean? I appreciate their yeah. self-sufficiency, and like, I support STEM. Like, I support STEM <laughs> initiatives. Yeah. Let's get women in STEM. I mean, yeah. this is the theme of this episode. Yeah, bringing in like the young girls as part of like their, you know, schooling programs. Yeah. yeah. Like women just wanted to code, but you wouldn't let them because you said it was for guys. So they had to get arsenic. Like that's on y'all. Is- that's on America. Yeah. That's Again. on the country, the world. Again, people. Yeah. <laughs> Members of the group then dressed in regular clothing, just to kind of be in disguise and went to 10 different fast casual restaurants, sprinkled bacteria into the salad bars out of like packets they tucked into their sleeves and oh that's kind of how the, the shit went down. <laughs> there was a massive voter suppression effort so that they thought that they would win. Wow. Oh. You know what? I bet any publicist or strategic campaign manager for any president maybe thought something like this. They were like, should we give every, should we give the like opposing side like Krispy Kreme coupons before? <laughs> so like they'll just get too sick or tired before. Like what could we work out? Are you sure they're not going to try this in Georgia? <laughs> Somebody call Stacey Abrams. <laughs> So, but it's so crazy too. This was their plan B. What? Wait. Their plan A, they tried this. Uh Uh-huh. Weirdly, it went astray. They were busing in homeless people when it was all over the country. (gasps) You got, you had the midnight train to Georgia. You had, you know, (laughs) Oregon Trail. You got everything. (laughs) Giving them free room and board in exchange for their vote. Oh, I mean, that's kind of, that is at least is like, you know, I guess maybe like a fair train. <laughs> You're still un, moving them out of their environment that they Writing know. Providing service, helping people in need. Yeah. But but the local board of election refused to let them register to vote because government's going to be government. <laughs> <laughs> of course, after all this, after they, even though they are like low key political masterminds, the U.S. government eventually did crack down on the group, charged them for fraud, financial crimes, firearm violations, and even violent crimes. Uh, our main boy fled from the, the handy airstrip that they built there, <laughs> blamed it all on Sheila, but was eventually tracked down and imprisoned. Sheila was sentenced for 20 years, only served two, and now lives in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. So, like, her and Tina Turner had the best idea, moving to Switzerland and just saying goodbye to everybody. <laughs> Not comparing them, just comparing uh-huh. their <laughs> geographic journey. I know that Sheila is in some ways the villain of the story, but she is so fucking iconic. Friends of Oregon says that their intention is to see this place dismantled. Good, they can come. They're most welcome. I'll be right on the road. They need to drive over me. It's their choice. 
I will paint their bulldozers with my blood. And I'll be proud to be under those bulldozers. You think it'll get to that point? If they're not aware of my determination, I think they're stupid. They're unintelligent. I love that she's like, oh, all you hicks don't like a brown woman telling you what's what and what's going to do? Tough titties. Tough Literally, titties. Tough quote, titties. Tough titties, titties. unquote. <laughs> that's the hard thing. I mean, it's one of those things where you got to be like, okay, you did a bad, but like, low-key respect. <laughs> right? <laughs> but also, I'm loving this whole look. Oh, I'm like, loving it. this. Right? <laughs> yes. Leah mm-hmm. may have had a personal interaction <gasps> relevant to the story. Yeah. Do you want to tell us about that? Anna and I. We used to be Hollywood elites. Hollywood elites. That's <laughs> Hollywood us. people. And when Wild Wild Country was out, of course, it was up for a bunch of awards. And, you know, the Emmys always have those for your Ooh. consideration screenings, Ooh. you know, many people. So I went to a little Netflix event. It's real <laughs> cash. You know, no, Just real cash no. for Wild Wild Country where they had, you know, the creators there and like Mark Duplass was there. And live via satellite was my non Sheila and it was freaking amazing. <gasps> oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Beaming in from Switzerland. Beaming in from Switzerland. Okay, that's iconic. Exactly. I know everybody there was also freaking out, but I, I couldn't wait to hear what she had yes. to say about this whole experience. And of course, in like true Manon Sheila style, Mark Duplass asked her, what was it like kind of going back and rewatching your story in this documentary and in this series? And she's like, well, I just fast forwarded through the parts that I already knew because like I lived it. I didn't need to waste my time watching it again. <laughs> Can't be bothered. I was like, oh my god. Way gosh. to break a filmmaker's heart. <laughs> it was great knowing that like she was like, I know my own story. Right. She's like, your artistic vision and retelling is irrelevant to me. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure that was humbling for the Duplass brothers because she was like, y'all think you're weird? Just wait till I get on the Zoom. <laughs> right. <laughs> but also at that FYC screening, there were like real Rajneeshi <gasps> oh, wow. people out there. At first, I thought, okay, you know, it's L.A., right? So it's like fans dressed up Uh, (laughs) for an event. They were going to the Handmaid's Tale room, (laughs) dressed all in red, and they got lost. Exactly. I'm like, no, they were were real, and they were there for her to see her. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's amazing. So there's still, like, then, like, probably a small and mighty group of them. In, yeah, oh, wow. they they are still around. They still, you know, look to the the Bhagwan's Osho's teachings, Manan's teachings. Oh uh, man, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah to yeah, guide yeah. their their lifestyles and their principles and values. So, I just feel like if you use as a blueprint for your life the words of a felon cosplaying as Jafar, like you maybe <laughs> want to look at your choices. Yeah. Reeval, course correct. <laughs> I had a friend who, when he first moved to L.A. when he was like 17 and he got whatever apartment, it was like a living room, right? Some apartment to sleep on. And he showed up and the people were like very strange hippies. And he remembered he would like go in to the laundry room and just all their clothes were red. There were just like whole laundry baskets filled with red clothes. And he was like, this is really weird. And then one night they were like, we're having a few friends over. And he's like, sure, whatever. No. And they had a full on like church orgy, orgy church. I don't know what they call it. Like their whole like religious process is just like crazy fucking. (laughs) On their knees for a different reason. Yeah. 
He's like a 17 year old on the couch going, um, guys. I feel like there's never been more of a moment where like you you call, mom, you were right. I shouldn't have moved to the city. (laughs) That is next level. Oh my gosh. Crazy. But you know, in all this, honestly, I blame salad. Salad's always trying to kill you. Think about all the times there's like, you know, a lettuce recall. Right? E. coli. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. You guys, seriously, salad bars are filthy. And I know this for a fact, and I'll tell you why. A few years ago, one of my parents had to go through cancer treatment. They're fine now. But they had to go through cancer treatment. And, you know, during chemo and everything, they destroy your immune system. So you have to be really, really careful that you don't get any kind of infection or exposed to any kind of bacteria. And so the number one thing that they told us was no salad bars. Are you kidding? No salad bars, no buffets. Because they are oh, filthy. no. That is just so... Because I feel like... I don't know if anyone listening is... I would always cling to a salad bar to be, like, healthy. <laughs> or, like, that Whole Foods where I would just, like, quote-unquote graze, basically steal food while eating. And I just, like... <laughs> but I probably... Joke's on me because I just was poisoning myself. You know what? Prepackaged. Just go with the <gasps> prepackaged. There are no filthy people sneezing, touching those spoons, oh. those tongs. There's no, just prepackaged, everyone. Oh my God. <laughs> oh, that is probably one thing that post-COVID should just never come back a salad bar. It should just yeah. not, Oh, absolutely. Handshakes, no. salad bars, oh. middle seats. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, those oh, no, should totally like, just stay away. No one wants to be in them. Mm-hmm. We should just have, no. So those are our poisonings. I'm obsessed. This is so much fun, Danny. Thank you for joining yes, us for this. This is awesome. Oh, thank you guys so much for having me. This I, I loved this. This is so much fun. You can look, but you better not touch. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Every Day is a Food Day. And special thanks to Danny Murphy from Not Another True Crime Podcast. The clips you heard today were from Wild Wild Country from Netflix, Bridesmaids from Universal Pictures, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs from Walt Disney Pictures, The Princess Bride from 20th Century Fox, Freaky Eaters from TLC, and the best ever food review show hosted by Sunny Side. And the music you heard today was Toxic by Britney Spears, Poison by Belle Biv DeVoe, Female of the Species by Space, Cell Block Tango from the musical Chicago and Poison Ivy by the Coasters. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show. Check out the links in our show notes and connect with us on social media at Food Day Pod. Every Day is a Food Day is a production of Van Valen Productions and Yum Day. It was created by Leah Ballantyne and Anna Van Valen. Our marketing intern is Elaine O. Our production intern is Emma Massey and our audio engineer is Jenny Snyder. Bye. Keep an eye on your food. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Oh,